All right, so uh, today I'm doing part two. Part one was done this morning, okay? So looking about learning, learning about maturity in the prophetic, because there's not a lot of maturity in the church when it comes to the things of prophecy and prophets and stuff like that, because let's be honest, it's never really been done that well. We've either had really crazy prophets or we've just had churches that just don't know how to deal with prophecy. Um, so this morning we looked at how the prophet must know the word, the word, the word. Jesus is the word, how he must know the Bible and how also he must understand that the prophet becomes the word as well in what they prophesy. Um, then we also looked at what else, how prophets must be people of prayer. Um, how the prophet must love the church and be a part of the church. Often I hear people wanting to prophesy into the church, but they themselves are not a part of church. And, uh, you know, it's just like, you can't be doing that. You can't say that you, you can't prophesy into something that you're not a part of. And I gave loads of scriptures for that and showed how Jesus himself did church in the sense of Jewish church. He was a good, good guy, went to synagogue every Saturday, uh, did the whole Jewish thing, you know, because obviously he was Jewish. Um, but he didn't like, oh, I'm not doing any of that because I'm like, you know, I'm going to prophesy into that. He wasn't like that. He was a part of everything that was going on around uh, and looked at some stuff there. Also looked at some bad attitudes within. I mean, it was pretty no punches uh, spared this morning, as you know me, about people that feel that they have the right to go into other people's churches and to prophesy when they themselves are accountable to nobody. Um, so and things like that. How the prophet must identify with the church, like in Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel said he... When he's praying for the, the nation of Israel, he identifies himself with the sins of the nation of, it, of, of Israel. He doesn't say, well, I wasn't even born then, so it's not my issue. He actually identified with the sins of the people and stuff. So that's pretty much what we covered this morning. So now we're going to cover uh, another aspect of maturity and prophecy. I'm going to start with the issue of timing. Okay, because that's always a big one with prophecy, isn't it? Don't you think? It's like someone gives a prophetic word. This is the, basically the, the mentality of us today. Someone has a prophetic word from the Lord that such and such is going to happen. And like two weeks later, well, that didn't happen, did it? Two weeks, like two weeks has passed and I don't know that ever happens. And, and that's kind of the mentality that we have. And I'm going to show you some things from Scripture that may actually really surprise you when it comes to issues of timing. So let's, uh, let's open our Bibles and we're going to go to uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, so to start with, we're going to look at verse 10. Sorry, yeah, big pardon, yeah. So 1 Samuel chapter 3. And uh, we start from verse 10. So this is when, when Samuel, he's only about 12 years of age, bless him, and uh, he's sleeping in the sanctuary next, next to the Ark of the Covenant. The, um, the, it says that the lamps hadn't yet gone out. Okay, now the lamps, uh, majority of the time, would generally go out as morning was coming up. So it was quite early in the morning when this happened. And so he, um, at least that's what commentators say, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but that's what they say. Uh, and so Samuel's lying down and uh, he keeps hearing his name being mentioned, Samuel. He's like, Ch -ch -ch gets up, yes Eli, which is you know, the high priest of the time. What do you want? I didn't call you. Oh, sure you did. Anyway, so we're back down to sleep. And uh, Samuel gets up, goes back to Eli, what do you want? He says, I didn't call you. Huh. Okay, he goes back down. Then the third time, Samuel, what do you want? He goes, I didn't call you. Ah, but maybe it's God that's calling you. So, you know, sit down. Next time you hear the voice say, your servant is listening. Please speak. And then we get to this in verse 10. 
and the Lord came and stood. Okay, and, and if you listen to this morning's uh, thing, uh, so when you're here about, I'm going to like, extrapolate how that would you know, quite clearly that, that was Jesus, and there's a whole big backstory to that, which I won't go into now because I did that this morning. So the Lord came and stood before Samuel, okay? Not God the Father, because God the Father is invisible in a sense. No one has ever seen him. And, and the New Testament scriptures make this clear. The only person that's ever seen God the Father is Jesus himself, okay? And all those that are in heaven right now. But no one on the earth has seen his form or heard his voice. That's what it says, okay? And the only time that you apparently probably would have heard his voice, and then that was a select few, was when, you know, that moment where um, it said something, uh, said, this is my beloved son, and some said, it thundered, you know, when they heard that voice. And also the time on the mount um, where Jesus was being transfigured, then they heard the Father's voice. But other than those two instances, nobody had ever heard the Father's voice or even seen his form, okay? So here, the Lord came and stood and spoke to Samuel again. Now, this poor old guy, right, he's 12 years of age and he is given a really blinder of a prophecy, okay? Now, I would have problems having to deliver this one, okay? Let alone being a 12-year-old kid, okay? And so this is the word. And I declare to him, this is about Eli, that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. A 12-year-old kid be given that as his first prophetic message to the guy that's raising him. Okay, And not just the guy that's raising him, he is the high priest of Israel. Okay? And at that time, didn't have any kings. Um, so it, it was, he was as good as it got. He was the top dog of the top dog of the nation of Israel. Okay? How would you like to do that, even as an adult? All right? <laughs> Not me. Now, so Samuel was 12 years of age. It says then, uh, in verse, if we now move over to verse 19. It says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now here, so Daniel's moving in prophecy and God is not letting any of his words fall to the ground. But as of yet, this one that he gave to Eli still hasn't come to pass yet. And all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared, again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, if you listen to this morning's sermon, the word of the Lord is the Devar Hashem, which is none other than Jesus himself, who is the word of the Lord in flesh. Okay? And if you like, oh, don't get that, please listen to this morning's sermon because I go into that in quite a lot of detail. Okay? So he now has an understanding that the word of the Lord is Jesus. Okay? And again, if you, if you don't agree with that, please listen to this morning's sermon. I go into all of the theology behind that. Okay? Then we just conveniently, when we read the Bible, we go, right, I've just read 3 Samuel now, great. Okay, he's had this prophecy from the Lord, and none of his words dropped to the ground. We now move to chapter 4, right? So what's happened? A day has gone by or something, or maybe a couple of weeks. No, 20 years later. All right, 20 years later. And this prophecy still hasn't come to pass yet. Like, well, how, how do you even know this? Um, 
How do you even know this is true? Well, because in uh, chapter 4, verse, where are we? I've got the scriptures here. Chapter 4, verse 15. Um, it says, now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Um, yet in the previous chapter, uh, it says that, it's in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. So there's a big time has passed. Okay, So this is really important. Because if you hear a word from the Lord and uh, get this prophetic message, and I've given a few in my time, right? Um, you can sit there and go, well, it didn't happen, did it? Because like two weeks have passed, it still hasn't come to pass. Okay? This prophetic word where God is going to end the family line of Eli forever took ages before it actually came to pass. Okay? Now, why is this important and why am I labouring this? Because there's an immaturity in the church that... If something is prophesied that it, it's got to happen next week, it's got to happen. Or if you get a personal prophecy or something, yeah? You know, I've had a personal prophecy. Oh, how, you know, how long have you been believing this? Oh, I don't know, five minutes and it still hasn't happened yet. It's like, guys, this could take the rest of your life. You know, with a prophecy to Abraham that, no, you will have a son. It was like another 25 years before he had a kid. And then, then when he had a kid, it was the most impossible moment in his life to have children for him and his wife. Okay, that's generally how God likes to work, right? Because, you know, on the other side of a compromise is a miracle. And we all saw what happened when Abraham compromised and had, uh, you know, had relations with Hagar. And now we've got the Middle East crisis going on. Thanks, Abraham. Okay. So let me give you uh, another example here. So if we now move to Genesis 15... This is a, a wonderful chapter which I covered again this morning in, in understanding what the word and who the word of the Lord is. But I'm moving down to verses 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be travellers in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So God here even gave a time frame. 400 years. Well, that's what it says there in the tin, right? But is that actually what happened? No. If you now turn to Exodus 12, verse 40... The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. I've heard all kinds of excuses and reasons why that went on for an extra 30 years, or maybe the, the calendar wasn't quite set right and all of this kind of stuff. But the reality is this. Say you are now, right? You're that last generation of the Israelites, and you're thinking... 400 years, it's like next year, and we're out of here. Hallelujah. Come on, guys. You start telling them, hey, guys, we've got another, we've just got one more year, and we're out of this dump. All right, hallelujah. Then it goes, then the 400 years pass, it's 401, 402, 403, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, by which time that guy's dead. 
This is sobering stuff because I see this in the church all the time. Next year, on October the 19th, the rapture's going to happen. I see it all of the time and it does my nutting, if I'm honest with you. It's like, stop predicting that stuff. Will you please give the church a break? How can you possibly know when the rapture's going to be? I don't care if you're pre, mid or post-rapture, okay? It's the same problem. How could you possibly know? How could you know when, when the pre-rapture is? Okay, if you believe in rapture before. I personally don't believe in a rapture until the end of the age, but that's neither here nor there. But if you believe it's before the Great Tribulation, how do you know when the Great Tribulation is? Oh, it's next year. It's next year. I just know it's next year. How do you know it's next year? Okay, where's the holy temple that should be built? What holy temple? Exactly. Um, where's, the, where's the king who defeats ten uh, nations and then he becomes the eighth of the seven nations? Where's that? Because that's never happened in living history. Well, that hasn't happened yet either. Okay, and what about the Gog of Magog and all that kind of stuff? Where is it? It hasn't happened yet. So how on earth can you tell me that Jesus is going to rapture his church next year? So another thing. Don't, this is what I call, don't throw prophecy under the agabus. Sorry for the pun. Mm. So if you now turn with me to Acts 11... Some of you are going, what's an Agabus? So Acts chapter 11 and verses 27 to 28. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, here's another thing that I get. Depending on which stream of Christianity you're in, there are some churches that say, look, there is prophecy in the New Testament church, but it's not predictive. We don't do predictive prophecy or anything like that. No dates, no correction, no mates, any of that kind of stuff. It's just edification, exhortation, and consolation. That's prophecy in the New Testament church. Oh, is it? Okay. So we come to Acts chapter 11. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, hence the pun, Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. That's a predictive prophecy. What about the Apostle John? The book of Revelation, if that isn't predictive prophecy, I don't know what is. I appreciate it's a little bit wild and out there. But it is still predictive prophecy, is it not? The Apostle Paul, he talks about prophecies and stuff. So again, this idea that there's no predictive prophecy in the New Testament is unfortunately just not biblical. It's just convenient for a church that doesn't want to wrestle with that kind of stuff, but it's not actually biblical. Having said that, having prophets that prophesy future events is unusual because, you see, prophets should not just foretell, as in tell the future, but primarily they foretell. So they are giving the now counsel of God into the church in the moment of time, okay? So telling forth the will and the word of God. Now, so when that prophecy was given, okay, how long do you reckon that took to come to pass? I mean, if, you, if you'd received that, that prophetic word, you're like this at the Council of Jerusalem and then this prophet guy comes up with his other prophets. Hey guys, I believe the Spirit is saying we're going to have a, prof- uh, a famine that's going to cover the whole known world, okay? When would you think that was kind of going to happen? That year? Maybe the next year? I don't know. But there would be a sense of urgency about it, right? Well, we know from the writings of Josephus, he states 
the, the famine. So that prophecy was likely given, they reckon, in around about 40, 42, 44 AD. But it, but it didn't actually come to pass till probably around about 40 AD, 45 AD, 46, 47. Okay, so again, you were given this prophetic message. It was genuinely from the Spirit of God. There was a sense of urgency about it, but there was still a time delay. And so there has to be a place of maturity in the saints where just because you receive a prophecy doesn't mean because it didn't happen in two weeks' time that it didn't come to pass. But there has to be a place of wisdom, both on leadership and on the congregation, to understand, like, was this word from God? Did it have all the hallmarks to it? And if it is, then probably it's still not yet come to pass. Okay, It's all really common sense kind of stuff. But we get a little bit funny. I want to just talk about some of my own uh, prophecies for a second. So as I've said before, the only time I've had a definitive date was in 2007 in about June. I was falling to sleep and an angel appeared to me in my bedroom and he told me the exact date of the stock market crash. The exact day, all right, three months out. So at that time of the church I was, which was Living Word to be fair, was it Living Word? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? We just started going. So it was when it was in Portsmouth. So I I said to the leadership, I said, look, this is what God's told me. And they were like, they were really wise with it. They were just like, okay, we'll we'll just see what happens with that. They didn't freak out, run around like headless chickens and, oh, that's not from the Lord. They just said, okay, well, we'll just have some wisdom with it. We'll just put it on the back burner and we'll just see if it comes to pass. And lo and behold, it did come to pass. Uh, But God has been showing myself over the last 25 years. I mean, these are 25 years I've been hanging on this stuff. For the biggest stock market collapse the modern day world has ever witnessed bar none. It will make the Great Depression look like a nice little walk in the park. Okay, what's coming is enormous. It is quintessential massive shaking to everything that we hold dear. I've been holding on to those prophecies now for 25 years. 25 years. Hallelujah. How do you think that makes me feel, let alone you to hear it? I feel like Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah, it's like, oh God, why should I even bother saying anything? Because it's never going to happen anyway. All right? You can, see, you can understand the frustration of the prophets. Like, well, you said this was going to happen, but it still hasn't happened yet. 25 years. But now we are seeing the beginnings of that now come about. Because what happened in 2007 was just a on the needle. That is nothing. That is nothing compared to what's coming. I'm not trying to inspire fear and instill fear in us. I'm trying to say it's time to really get ready because it's coming. And it's already began. You think, well, how's it already began? Well, already you've got issues with inflation. Um, but Chris, that's coming back down. Yeah, but core inflation isn't coming back down. And so therefore, what else? Um, you know, back in the mini budget, thanks to Liz Truss, do you remember the bond market went crazy and, the, and they had to bail out the bond market in case there was a pensions collapse? Well, mainstream media is not telling you this, but you can look at it if you see it on Bloomberg. The yields now are higher now than they were when everyone freaked out. A lot of people don't realise that. That's bad news. That means it's more cost, it's more expensive for us as a nation to sell our debt, which means we are not in a place to enable us to pay our debts. 
We've also got a massive housing collapse that's about, it's imminent, that's going to happen over the next two years. This is not coming from me. This is coming from top economists, uh, economists who know what they're talking about. But again, the, the mainstream media is not really reporting it just yet. You're seeing some instances of it, but they're not. And all this nonsense you're seeing, like, oh, right move, and it's saying that it's, it's the best ever, that's all a load of nonsense. Because what they do is they, right move only records, apparently, if someone takes their house off the market to lower the price and then puts it back on again, they only record that the new ones that go on they don't record the price changes whereas the Halifax index and others are more accurate they reckon it's the worst housing market so far well I was listening the other day not the other day that mortgages the uptake on mortgages in Britain has been the worst since Beck records began this month since 1800 and something okay so no one's talking about it but it's coming and it's starting. Now, it was, the, it was the housing collapse that brought down a lot of banks in 2007. Bear Stearns, uh, Freddie and Fannie Mae and all those kind of big names, if you remember. And they had to have huge bailouts. And then that's what brought in quantitative easing. Well, this time they can't do quantitative easing. This time there is none of the tools that they had at their disposal that they can use anymore on these banks. Okay? So what's coming is going to be gargantuic. But this isn't thousands of years away. This is not no, 20 years away. This stuff is within the next couple of years. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. But like, like in the time when Agabus gave that warning, that was the equivalent of what we would call a stock market crash. Because the, the main industry of the day was agriculture, amongst other things. And so, you know, without agriculture. And according to the writings of Josephus, lots of people died in that famine. Lots of people died. But that's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul's on this money drive for the church. He says, hey guys, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. Okay, and he's like, it's, it, you, know, you know when you go to those churches where they're really trying to get an offering out of you? Yeah, we, we don't like it, do we? But that is actually what Paul is doing because that, that time of the famine is kicking in now and he needs that money to go to the churches that need to support it. And this is not just a couple of hundred pounds. We are talking an awful lot of money to feed congregations across the known world at that time with enough food and enough stuff to sustain them for however long that, that uh, famine went on for. We're talking serious amounts of money. Okay, it's a lot of money. Hallelujah. So moving on now, so from that, and uh, moving into the place of the prophet. Now, some people might go, why is this relevant to me, Chris? I'm not a prophet, and I don't really care much for prophecy and stuff like that, which is fine. But in Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about the fivefold ministry. Okay, are you aware of that? What is it? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Okay, and it says that they're there for the equipping of the saints to the fullness of the maturity of the stature of Christ. That is what they're there for. So if you don't have them, you and I are the poorer for it. Okay? It's God's will to have that fivefold ministry so that you can be strong in the things of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. So the place of the prophet then. So if you turn with me back to 1 Samuel again. And uh, we're looking at verses 21 to 22. I won't go on too long. I can, I can appreciate you all. Like, man, Chris, we're just really hanging out in here. It's so hot and humid, dude. So I know how you feel. I'm looking around and everyone's like going... <laughs> okay. Sorry? 
Uh, so yeah, First Samuel chapter one, one, yeah, and verses twenty-one to twenty-two. Uh, yeah, and it says the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child, which is Samuel, is weaned, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So if you are prophetic, or you want to be, if you feel you're called into the office of prophet, now remember, bear in mind that what I'm saying here is going out you know, across this nation and stuff, so this is not just for us. But there is some serious things that you need to consider here. You cannot be a prophet that does not spend hours a day in prayer. I'm sorry. You, you can't be a decent pastor if you're not spending a certain amount of time in prayer for your congregation. You can't honestly say that you're an evangelist if you're not on your knees and praying. You know, so like, I just want to get out there and tell them about Jesus. Well, you need to get on your knees and pray because if you're going to get any results in your life, it comes through prayer. Glory be to God. So the thing that the prophet must do is that they must be people of prayer. Hallelujah. They must be people that are in constantly the presence of the Lord. You know, because things can just come through at any moment in time. The other day I was talking to Tracy and it just came out of my mouth about Rishi Sunak and, and the Titanic. And I was like, oh, ooh. it just came out of my mouth because it's the overflow of what God is doing in me because I'm spending time in his presence. I'm not saying this to blow my trumpet. I'm saying this to stir us all up that if you're to move in the prophetic, you've got to be in the presence of God. But with that comes quite a sharp warning as well. I remember, and he was very honest to share this with, with me, he's, his name's Kirk Bennett and he's from the IHOP movement in America. And he came over here a few years back and we did a big conference and stuff with him. It was really great. And he said, you know, in the early days, we, we just virtually never prayed. But we could just go up to anyone and prophesy over them. And he says, that's a really, really scary place to be. He said, I can't believe that I was like that. that I, because you, some of you might think, oh, how could he prophesy if he wasn't in the presence of God? Because the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Are you with me? But he could, just, he could just give out prophetic words over anybody at will and lay hands on people and instantly get a word for them. But he said, but I myself was not listening and in the presence of God. And he got, God gave, did a real number on him. And, uh, and so then he got, that's how he got involved in the whole IHOP thing and the house of prayer and spending hours a day in prayer. And it just turned his uh, ministry around to the point now where he travels the nations, I think under the name of the Seven Thunders, and is teaching people about prayer and medit contemplation and meditation, all the sort of things that I teach as well. In fact, it was him that kind of started me on that walk, if I'm honest, in certain, certain areas with the IHOP stuff. As a prophet, you have got to be spending time before the Lord. Everyone, no disrespect, but I come across too many Christians that have their opinions. Wow, this is what I think about this and this is what I think about that. And it's like, that's all very well and good and you're all entitled to your opinion, but are you actually getting that from the secret place with God or is that just something you saw on YouTube? Or is that just something you just read in the paper and this is your opinion? Because yeah? quite frankly, no disrespect, but I'm not interested in anyone's opinion. I'm only interested in what God is saying. That's not to be some, some super spiritual guru. The fact is, I'm only interested really, what's God saying here? Because you can be in a room with 20 opinions, but I'm like, well, what is God actually saying here? And you are not going to know what God is saying if you're not a person that listens to God and have not disciplined and trained yourself to be in that place. Hallelujah. 
Um, how long have I got? I don't want to go on for much longer because uh, oh, I've gone on for half an hour. That'll be long enough. I could do a part three next week. Yeah. Amen. So just to, just to close this, I'm, I'm trying to spend some time to teach people about prophecy so that we can have a better grasp of it and a better maturity with it. So you, as, as, as congregations, you can take this stuff and go, I, I can test prophecy for myself and I, and I can discern things for myself. You don't need a leader to do this for you. Well, I'm not going to wrap you up in cotton wool. You can figure this out for yourself. And indeed, you should have the spiritual acumen to know uh, that's slightly awful. Yeah, I think that's from God. Yeah, you should all have that. But like anything, you need to train your senses. So which means you've got to have some basic training, basic understanding, and then, and then moving in the things of God so that you can discern things for yourself. Okay? Because remember, the fivefold ministry, the purpose of what their, 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 their aim, is so that you can do what they do. Because that's what they're there for. Okay? So if they're there to bring you all to the fullness of the maturity of the stature of Christ, then, for example, the prophetic ministry is to enable you to understand the prophetic ministry and to a certain degree operate in it as well. Just like evangelists will inspire you to get out there and tell people about Jesus. And just like the pastors, they'll be there to help you, to heal you and whatever, to teach you how to help and to heal others. Are you with me? So, so this is why this stuff's important. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for all these wonderful baptisms. And I thank you, Lord, that it's Father's Day today, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, for all of those fathers that are here today and those that have gone bef- behind us, as well, before us as well, Lord God, in times past. All those great spiritual fathers that you've blessed the church with and blessed us with, Lord God, throughout the ages. We bless you, Father. We thank you, Lord. We give you praise, Lord, that you are the true one Father, Lord God. And we just delight in you and we thank you. And Lord Jesus, we love you so much and we just rejoice in you, Lord God. And Father, I just pray for the food we're about to see. Pray you bless it and pray we'll all have a hearty time of fellowship in the precious name of Jesus. And all the saints said, Amen. God bless you all.